0: Hey, this is Greg Graffin from Bad Religion. I'd like you to listen to Books on
1: Pod with Trey. We just had a great talk about Bad Religion's new book that's out there. Do What You Want, The Story of Bad Religion.
0: Hello, readers. Helen Pluckrose is a liberal, political, cultural writer, speaker, and the editor of Aereo magazine. James Lindsay is a mathematician with a background in physics and founder of New Discourses. Together, they co-authored the new book, Cynical Theories. Thank you both for the time today. Helen, we'll start with you on this. Where did the idea come from to write Cynical Theories?
1: Well, after we'd done the project, that sort of demonstrated the problem, but we really wanted to explain how it worked. And so when publishers reached out to us saying, is there something you'd like to write for us? Then that was the thing that leapt to our minds. Let's look at all the theories. Let's make them really accessible. It's not a book for academics, but it does have enough references and footnotes for academics from other fields to still get a good sense of it. But mostly it's for people with no background background in the theory at all who see the symptoms of the problem and they want to understand the ideas behind them.
0: James, as you all admit early on in this book, postmodernism is hard to define in part because it has taken three pretty different forms over the last 60 plus years. What was postmodernism like when reaching popular culture for the first time in the late 60s and early 70s?
2: That's a little complicated itself because postmodernism has been a number of different movements as well. Before the three different types that we chronicle in the book that started from the 1960s, it's been a movement in art, it's been a movement in architecture, it's been a movement in music, it's been a movement in literature. So it came in a lot of different forms. And that's mostly what would have been seen, and again, mostly only in France in the 1960s. It wasn't until fairly well into the 1970s that it finally made its way to the United States and injected itself into the English departments, I think starting at Yale. And at that time, it was very playful. It was very deconstructive. In fact, they focused literally on the word play. They wanted to play with ideas. They wanted to take them apart. They wanted to fiddle around with language and be generally cynical and pessimistic about the way that power and language and society interact with one another. But for the most part, it was this sort of silly form of complaining about language and that had a more serious point within it. And that more serious point within it was that they believe that all knowledge is socially constructed and then mediated through language. And so because all knowledge is socially constructed, all power comes down to who gets to authenticate what is considered true and not true. And in particular, this shifted the frame from... Knowledge being something that can be objective and understood objectively through methods like scientific inquiry, empiricism, even reason, and moved it into a frame where knowledge becomes wholly subjective. It's just an illusion that we have access to objective truth. The English departments freaking loved that because they were ready for other ways of knowing, for their own ways of knowing to, as they called them, to be promoted. And in particular, not just English departments, but the activists who had taken up within English departments primarily doing feminism. So feminists embedded within English departments who wanted there to be other ways of knowing and especially who wanted to be able to say that science doesn't have the corner on knowledge production, which has been a big theme both in English departments and philosophy departments for a very long time, at least going back to the, I'd say, 30s or 40s, suddenly had this tool landed in their laps with this obscure French theory. And of course, French everything in the 70s would have been very chic. (laughs) And so there's a a tremendous amount of excitement with these airy-fairy academics who wanted to have other ways of knowing rooted in subjective experience and who wanted to take on a fashionable French thing that the French were already kind of starting to scoff at because they were turning to people like René Girard and to Pierre Bourdieu for their sociological investigations. And the postmodernists and poststructuralists looked like a bunch of kind of avant-garde weirdos. So there's this weird set of Milou's that basically saw this idea of playing with words, playing with language, and then using that to tear apart the idea that we can actually know what's true. That became very fashionable within English departments and activists that were taking up within English and philosophy departments who wanted to take on the idea, the enlightenment idea, that objective truth exists and that we can know something about it.
0: Helen, postmodernism is also rooted in a sort of disillusionment with political ideologies and science. I get losing faith in the political machine, but why science?
1: Well, science was, of course, the most successful knowledge production Mechanism. The best way of producing knowledge is by testing, by trying to falsify things that you think are true, by trying to replicate them. This doesn't go very well with postmodern ideas at all, which sees knowledge as culturally dependent. So science challenges that by claiming to be universal. It doesn't matter if you're a white woman in England or you're a Chinese man or an Asian trans person, if you do the same. Scientific test, you should get the same results. And if you don't, then there's a problem with the knowledge. It isn't that everybody has their own truth, it's that something has gone wrong. But of course, science for the postmodernists, and particularly for Foucault, who looked at the history of sexuality, was very much tied up with Western ways of knowing and imperialism and colonialism, patriarchy, all of these sort of dominant ideas that he sees as coming from the West. And he looked particularly at what he called biopower and this idea that medical discourses, scientific discourses, have so much authority... That they are accepted as true, and this has not worked out well for gay people. So, looking at the history of how we've understood homosexuality under Christianity, it was accepted as a sin for centuries. Then, when sexology arose in the late 19th century, which is when Foucault and the queer theorists who followed him focus on, then we saw a change from homosexuality being evil to being a kind of mental illness, a disorder. So this didn't take very long while it was being examined scientifically for people to realise it wasn't a disorder. And as liberalism grew, to realise that it wasn't a sin either. Homosexuality is something a small percentage of the population just are, and there isn't any need for anyone to moralise about it. But Foucault and the queer theorists who followed him stay very much in this late 19th century, early 20th century, the discourses of science that denigrated homosexuality as something that was wrong and disordered and then a future Theorists have tried to apply this to things like obesity and disability and argue that we only think it's better that all one's body parts work or that one remains at a weight where you can be a fully functioning biped because of socially constructed discourses that are fat phobic and ableist. So it's all very strange, but science is the greatest threat because it makes a claim to objective knowledge.
0: We'll certainly get into... Disability study, fat studies, and also some of these theories. But in order to help our listeners out just a little bit, we need to establish exactly what theory is and when it first started to rear its head in postmodernism. James, you guys spell out the three major forms of postmodernism that have taken. Popular culture by a sort of storm since the 1960s. It started with tearing everything down or deconstruction. When did deconstruction peter out and what form did reconstruction take in the late 80s and early 90s in the form
2: of theory? So the book Cynical Theories can be thought of in a sense as a I tried to at least structure it very much as like a story about this character called the theory with a capital T. And so we adopted a few unusual capitalization rules to everywhere theory appears in the sense that it is what was originally called theory, postmodern theory, or its derivatives that we capitalized it. So I want people to think of theory as a character that's evolved through history. So theory with a capital T means essentially postmodern theory as a theory of everything. And the book chronicles three phases of its evolution over the past 50 or so years, if we kind of set as earmarks in 20-year intervals, if you set around 1970, you know, late 1960s going into the 70s, as the kind of origin of the first phase of postmodernism or theory coming into its own being, we refer to that as the high deconstructive phase, which you definitely just mentioned. And then by about 1990, to give another 20-year bookmark, something changed. And what had happened was that you can only tear things apart for so long. You can only play around with ideas for so long before it just starts to get silly. If you start deconstructing the meaning in everything and everything starts to turn into kind of meaningless mush, the applesauce of of scholarship or the applesauce of ideas, you can't really do anything with it. You certainly couldn't go build a social movement out of torn apart, mushy ideas and playing around with things constantly. And so a generation of activists, mostly in the 1980s and then leading into the 1990s using 1990 kind of as a bookmark. 1989 is a better year to use as the bookmark, but they started to adapt the ideas of an older theoretical model that did not refer to itself as theory, but it referred to itself as critical theory. And they combined that with the postmodern theory. So theory underwent an evolution or a mutation around 1990 That incorporated the very us versus them, oppressor versus oppressed, zero-sum worldview of critical theory that splits the world into the good people who are fighting for liberation and the evil people who are fighting to maintain oppression over the oppressed. And it incorporated that by setting aside certain identity factors, which it decided were not deconstructible. So, you have postmodern theory doing deconstruction of everything. And then you had a generation of feminists, particularly black feminists in the 1980s, who said, wait a minute, I experience oppression. I experience oppression based on my race. That experience of oppression is, in a sense, properly basic. If we even look at postmodern theory and it talks about if everything's subjectivism, then lived experience must be properly basic to something. And so that can't be deconstructed. And they hit upon the idea that only the privileged could possibly deconstruct a source of oppression. And again, these were people who were coming out of the line of thought of critical theory that splits the world into oppressor versus oppressed. So the oppressed now all of a sudden have this thing that can't be deconstructed attached to their identity. So therefore, it's also inappropriate to deconstruct identity as a corollary to it being inappropriate to deconstruct the experience of oppression. So they literally turned on their academic forebears, they literally turned on Foucault and Derrida and said that their ideas were the things that only privileged white men who were relatively well-off could do, and said things like that no black person could possibly, no black woman in particular, could possibly try to deconstruct the source of her own oppression because that would require power to be able to do it, and they don't have power. So all of a sudden, a a very critical mutation of postmodernism or postmodern theory came into being. And at that point, theory took on a new angle that we referred to as applied postmodernism. So if we looked historically now, we've got deconstructive postmodernism or high deconstructive postmodernism leading into applied postmodernism, where these particular types of activists have figured out how to package up the postmodern tools and use them to do their very radical form of identity politics. That step required making race, sex, sexuality, gender, in a sense, real. Now, I have to be careful around sex and gender being real. They're real as social constructions. They're not real as biological categories. It's very important that they saw this all in terms of the social constructivist model that theory posited about the whole world. So they, in a sense, reified identity in around 1990. Well, another generation, academic generation later, 20 years later or so, we kind of bookmark it about 2010, we claim that theory evolved further. And this wasn't a sharp mutation. This was kind of the you've now had a reification. You now have ideas that can't really be questioned. The lived experience of oppression cannot be questioned within theory. The reification took place around 1990. So by about 2010, it became just generally accepted a set of things that are just known to be true within people studying theory, that the lived experience of oppression is a real thing in the world. And at that point, the moralization came in very, very clearly that critical theory ethos became very concretized and even codified and turned into doctrine, if you will. And you started to see a new generation of theory where famously theory being postmodern theory, leading even into this critical version of postmodern theory. is very obtuse. It's very jargony. It was very famous. That's why when we did the Grievance Studies Affair, we started off trying to hoax them. It's just all these <laughs> people on the internet now call it word salad. And the thing is that it's not word salad, although it kind of was when it was high deconstructive play. They were just screwing around with words and then they reified some ideas. And then by about 2010, it had become very simple very clear. You have people writing not necessarily academic papers, but books that could be comprehended by a 10-year-old who was able to adopt a very condescending tone. Now, you still have some of the jargon, especially in queer theory. And of course, they still use a lot of the heavy academic terminology as a kind of a signal of belief and to identify those who understand and those who don't, to separate the world into the elites who get it and the plebs who don't. But nevertheless, it started to simplify itself and take on very faith-like overtones by about 2010. So we have these three phases of postmodern theory that we try to lay out in the book. And the first phase is that deconstructive, playful, cynical approach. That then took on a even more cynical view of identity politics in about 1990, and we call that applied postmodernism. And then it simplifies and condenses itself into something very applicable and very much like a religious faith that can be evangelized for by about 2010, which we then call it near the end of the book, chapter eight reified postmodernism, which is what we find ourselves in under the social justice movement. So rather than usually calling it reified postmodernism, which is a bit academic and words that people aren't usually comfortable with, we just refer to it with all capital letters as the truth according to social justice, and <laughs> which is how they now see it.
0: You guys do a good job of tackling some of these major theories. You've obviously mentioned queer theory, critical race theory is another one, but you started off by talking about post-colonial theory. Helen, what exactly is post-colonial theory?
1: Post-colonial theory is one of the ones that has changed quite a lot. It was really the first to emerge, and it's the closest to post-modernism. It was seen where post-modernism is understood as having, being past modernity, being past accepting the assumptions of the modern era about science, progress, and reason post-colonialism wanted to narrow that and consider itself post the imperial age and focus very much on how imperialism and colonialism had affected our sense of the world and people's sense of themselves. So this is not so much looking at the material aftermath of colonialism, which is obviously a legitimate area of study, but much more literary endeavour, looking at how the West constructed itself in opposition to the East. So the foundational text of post-colonial theory proper, there's a lot of texts before that that were influential, was Edward Said and his Orientalism. And Orientalism is when a Western academic constructs their own sense of the West as rational, liberal, honest, and all these strong, powerful, reasonable things by constructing the use as irrational, violent, barbaric, superstitious. So Orientalism was how it all began. That was very much based on Michel Foucault. But then when we got people like Gayatri Spivak and Homi Bava, then we got much more of the Derridean in there, where they wanted to deconstruct language to a really significant extent so that they couldn't really be sure were saying anything. This really results in a lot of scholarship that comes to the conclusion that we cannot trust language, we cannot trust how we speak, and a lot of this is the fault of colonialism. The colonial language has been forced upon the other who now cannot really signify themselves apart from in opposition to the West. So this was the beginning phase of that. And that was still very much in the deconstructive postmodern phase. But as that has come on more gradually, over the last sort of 30 years, it too has simplified. We are seeing now much clearer language, much more direct aims. Like the aim to decolonize everything, absolutely everything, is part of the post colonial movement, which has now moved to reconstructing. We want to get certain people, we want to destroy certain statues, certain art, we want to get more people from racial minority into universities, into everywhere. Now, this is diversification. This is perfectly consistent with the liberal idea, you know, expand your perspectives. But what is most worrying coming from the post-colonial point of view is this idea of deconstructing knowledge. It's the idea that we only think that science and reason are the best ways of knowing, Because the West constructed them, we have unfairly disadvantaged ways of knowing that belong to women and racial minorities. Now, that, I'm afraid, is rather racist and sexist, because the conclusion you get from that is that science and reason and academic rigor generally belongs to white people. And so we've seen some of this recently. Was it the Smithsonian that put out a thing about white supremacy being based in hard work and rigor and punctuality, (laughs) all these other things? It's very difficult not to see this as horrendously racist and of course many academics who are not white have pointed out that they can also do science and reason and that's kind of where we are at the moment in a decolonial stage of post-colonialism where we want to decolonize knowledge itself we want to cast doubt upon maths upon science Upon reasoned argument, we want to get in autoethnography, spiritual beliefs, sometimes even witchcraft. That was a part of the decolonized science movement in South Africa. So, this really does recreate the Orientalist idea that science, reason, and liberalism belong to the West, and the East has other ways of knowing. James, it's
0: interesting because a common theme throughout this book in looking at some of these different theories and ideas of postmodernism is that the baseline idea is not necessarily incorrect. It's what they choose to do with it that it just turns a little bit loopy. Is there a sort of nihilism that comes into play with postmodernism that takes a seemingly decent idea in the beginning and just turns it into something that is very difficult for rational-minded people to consider getting behind?
2: I think that's probably true. If we look at the environment in which postmodernism originally arose in France, you aren't looking at a particularly happy time for the leftists who became the postmodern philosophers. On the one hand, you had these schools of thought, in particular existentialism, which kind of ends in nihilism, and then structuralism that has these kind of peculiar ways of thinking about the ways that language and the design of society interact with one another, that they're deeply steeped in. But the existentialism underneath everything was very present. And then what you have is a bunch of thinkers who have now been classified as post-Marxist, so unlike their compatriots or comrades, I should say, maybe in the Frankfurt School over in Germany, and I guess by that point in, in, in America, they weren't in Germany after World War II. Hmm. But unlike their German counterparts, these French post-Marxists were operating in a situation where they could no longer deny the abject failures of Marxist revolutions and Soviet states. They had a lot of belief added in, unlike the neo-Marxists, they had a lot of belief added in that even Marxism had failed them. So now you have these people who are steeped in existential thought. They were literally connected to Sartre and things like this. So they're steeped in this nihilistic line of thought. They're watching their favored ideology, Marxism, fail. They already don't believe in liberalism. They already don't believe in science. They already have spent all of this time criticizing that. You can't turn back to liberalism after you've spent so much time criticizing it. So you end up with this very pessimistic, everything is awful. Nothing really matters sort of attitude. And that's really what you end up with in postmodernism. That's what they brought to the theory. So I think you have put your finger on it. They do tend to observe rather banal things that almost everybody observes. So you could call this a kernel of truth or whatever. And then they do very bizarre things with it that are rooted in this extraordinary pessimism, this extraordinary cynicism about our ability to know things, about our ability to use our knowledge to produce good things in the world. Instead, no, knowledge is just a form of power, and we misuse our power to cause all these harms. And so you also end up getting this very cynical way of cherry-picking about the world and saying, well, let's not focus on the successes that these advances in knowledge have had. Let's only look at the ways that they've created harm. And it's all rooted in this very pessimistic way of thinking about the world. And if you tap it back into existentialist thought, you can definitely see where that vibe comes from because nothing lasts, nothing matters. Might as well just play around, add that in with the structuralist school. And now it's might as well play around with words, see how those interface with creating power structures in society. Everything is bad. Marxism is just another meta narrative alongside liberalism, alongside science, alongside capitalism, everything sucks. Let's <laughs> just take it all apart. And you can kind of see where that high deconstructive idea came from. It's very much so that, but again, mutated later and it took up this very positive, what is known as liberationist ethos, which came from the neo-Marxists that created the applied postmodern turn as they took up postmodern tools later. And so I actually want to add on to what Helen just said about the decolonial thing, because she mentioned Edward Said in terms of postcolonial theory, and she alluded to there being older texts upon which these things are based and it's very important to realize just how deep this nihilism can manifest into society when you start doing weird things with ideas. So before Said, she mentioned that Said was heavily rooted in Foucault, he was also very heavily influenced by another writer, a French psychoanalyst by the name of Franz Fanon. And Franz Fanon wrote these books about the colonial context, in particular most famously maybe Black Skin's White Masks and then later The Wretched of the Earth that we mentioned in cynical theories as a setting up post-colonial theory. Well, Fonin's point was that if you are in a colonized context, that this is so damaging to one's self-image, to one's sense of self and valuing oneself and being able to, as Helen put it, signify for oneself or even to signify oneself as an individual or as a people, that they have to react with violence. The colonized have a right to react with violence, to restore their self-image, to restore their dignity, to restore their self-determination. And this was a very radical proposition, of course, and maybe within the context of literal colonialism, it makes sense. But now as post-colonial theory has evolved, there is a group that cites Franz Fanon very, very routinely, if you read their literature, I've even seen screenshots of some of their chat groups that they're actively using right now, in the present. As in last night, while they were setting Kenosha, Wisconsin, on fire, they have a chat group directing people where to go, how to get there, what to do, where to set the fires, where the police are going to be weak or not present, and who are they citing? Franz Fanon, Antifa is heavily rooted in Franz Fanon. Why? Because this belief that everything that has been touched by Western knowledge is colonized by Western ways of thinking. And then you add in Fonin's idea that everything that's been colonized needs to be responded to with violence in order to restore one's dignity and sense of self. Now you have something that's literally the silly theories, it seems like, manifesting in buildings and, and vehicles and things being set on fire. Perfectly consistently with what's being written, because the idea of what colonization means has expanded to include basically everything touched by Western thought. And that's where this nihilism that you're talking about and these weird ways of taking basic observations starts to manifest into horrible things. The consequences of ideas become pretty clear when you do this. And this can all be traced, like I said. I'm literally seeing screenshots that were captured out of chat groups directing people to go do this violent rioting and arson that are citing Franz Fanon in real time as the reason that they feel justified in doing it. And then you can turn to the Antifa literature. I think Mark Bray, I may be wrong on his first name, has a book called Antifa. There's another book by AK Press that's titled Black Block White Riot, which is an obvious homage to Franz Fanon's Black Skins White Masks. In fact, it's not just obvious. They explicitly say it a few pages in. And these books talk about finding on nearly every page. They also, of course, cite Herbert Marcuse, who inspired the same idea. So this neo-Marxism got brought in and combined with that postmodern nihilism to turn into something just really dangerous and really poisonous. And it's literally what's setting our cities on fire right now.
0: Helen, queer theory, amongst other things, is all about the liberation from gender and sexuality norms. As you guys have alluded to uh, a little bit earlier in this conversation, the underlying point isn't wrong. But the way we see sexuality has changed quite a bit in our lifetimes and beyond. Is queer theory the most glaring example amongst these theories of postmodernism rejecting science?
1: It's... um. I think it probably is. When we're looking at queer theory, that is the most explicit rejection, not only of science, but of any kind of stable reality. It's opposed to the idea of categories on principle. It believes that if we put people into categories, specifically categories of male, female, masculine, feminine, heterosexual or homosexual, then we are constraining them. This comes from Derrida. So when we have Derrida's ideas of binaries, he argued that we only understand concepts of things by their relation to other things. So we only understand what a man is in relation to woman. So in addition to having this kind of binary understanding of how the world works, we always put them in a hierarchy. So man would be above woman. So for the whole sort of underlying idea of queer theory, which is really very difficult to understand because it's written in very obscure language because it doesn't trust language to convey meaning, and theirs certainly doesn't, Um, (laughs) this very simple idea that we need to deconstruct those binaries we need to get rid of categories. If we can do that, then people who don't fit neatly into male or female, masculine or feminine, gay or straight, won't be under any pressure to do so and they won't be evaluated as lesser than another group. So this is very different from the liberal approach, which understands that humans are extremely variable, you know, some of us may be more masculine in our presentation, more feminine in our presentation, we may be gay, we may be straight, we may be bisexual, this doesn't need moralising about and the liberal aim is just to get people to accept difference. For the queer theorists, this is by no means good enough. We need to actually confuse and problematise the whole idea of categories in the first place. So when we have the word queer, which is now also used as a verb, it means to blur these kind of categories, any categories at all. You can queer them by trying to smudge them and let one thing bleed into another and resist any stable categorisation
0: I think that's an important distinction. It does not necessarily refer to sexuality. So thank you for clearing that up there. And James, you guys point out, whereas postcolonial and queer theories are ambiguous in their goals, that's not so with critical race theory. What is critical race theory and what are their goals?
2: Yeah, critical race theory actually arose out of critical legal studies, which was being done in a very materialist sense. So it was concerned with laws, with institutions, with actual material realities of society that affected people along the axis of race, particularly Black people. It arose in the American context and was very interested in that. It actually grew out of the lingering problems even following the Civil Rights Act. So critical legal studies was really the birthplace. And as such, it's very orderly, as you would expect lawyers to be. The two founders of critical race theory are Derek Bell, who was the first African-American tenured professor at Harvard Law, and one of his doctoral students, Kimberly Crenshaw, who also obviously was at Harvard Law. And so we're looking at lawyers who were taking the ideas of critical legal studies and adding in the vector of race. And like I said, Derek Bell would have been very materialist in his approach. His student, Kimberly Crenshaw, however, being deeply involved in the black feminism movement, which had taken up with postmodern thinking by that point was much more postmodern than he was. So critical race theory begins with, and tends to list its principles in very concrete, clear ways. And you can read, say, in their foundational texts, probably the standard text is called Critical Race Theory and Introduction. And the introduction up to that book, you know, the first few pages of it, actually lay out a number of core tenets of critical race theory. So they tend to list these things and very clearly explain what they're about. And the first one of these beliefs is that racism is the ordinary, not aberrational state of society, and it has a very strong permanence to it. It's very difficult to get rid of if it can be got rid of at all. The second is interest convergence, which is this idea that powerful racial groups, many white people primarily, but you can look at the whole hierarchy of being more racially advantaged with black people being placed at the bottom of this hierarchy. The more powerful groups only help less powerful groups when it's in their own self-interest to do so. In other words, there's never a valid altruistic or moral motive for increasing the rights opportunities or enfranchisement of racially disenfranchised people. It's always got to be in somebody's self-interest or they won't do it. So it's a very cynical read on people's motivations. It talks about countering the prevailing narratives with storytelling and narrative weaving and so it positions those ideas as being the property of Blackness, which should be asserted as a positive identity, kind of a Black power mentality, and they are in opposition. They're supposed to answer the white hegemony of science. Of the, you, We see it now, for example, where Rutgers is decolonizing, as they phrased it, grammar and spelling. You see it with these kind of movements to have linguistic justice to where we're now going to consider alternative spellings or dialects of English to be equally clear for communicating as the predominant dialect. So you have lots of these kinds of principles that they lay out very explicitly, including a critique of liberalism, that liberalism has failed racial minorities and needs to be critiqued rather than embraced, That critical race theory lays out very explicitly. So having come from a materials perspective, their original purpose was to minimize the disenfranchisement and discrimination in the law and in our institutions. And when that was more or less achieved, it switched gears and started trying to do that in language, in ideas, and culture, more importantly. You have these books that came out around the early 2000s that were called the new racism. And they talk about how basically biological racism, where we believe that there are biological traits with race that create superiority or inferiority or beliefs about superiority and inferiority, that's been completely discredited. And now we barely have any institutional racism left. So institutional racism's Present, but not terribly significant. So now we have to look at cultural racism. That's the new racism as they defined it. I think even Patricia Hill Collins, a very, very significant scholar who wrote the defining books on intersectionality, taking off of Crenshaw's ideas in the early 1990s. She wrote about this new racism, which is that it's all hidden and buried within culture. So its goals have become not to look at our institutions or our laws where it began, but rather in a very cynical way, I should add in pessimistic way, but rather to scour every vestige of culture, whether it's language, whether it's knowledge, whether it's math, whether it's how people dress, what music they listen to or like, to look at everything, representation in films, representation on TV, and find the racism that is ordinary and not aberrational that must be hidden within it. So it's to find racism in everything and then complain about that racism and demand change. That's the operational goal of critical race theory, is to find racism in everything, make race primarily salient. Kimberly Crenshaw following after bell hooks and other black feminists with a lot of influence wrote that it means much more to say I am black and it is superior to take on that positive black identity as opposed to I am a person who happens to be black. And her reasoning is explicit in her most famous paper, which is titled Mapping the Margins. Her reasoning is that to take up with a person who happens to be black puts the person and their humanity first rather than their identity, which is crucial for identity politics. And so it's unrepentantly identity political in the way of, again, this liberationist politics that it took from neo-Marxist thinking. And that becomes the objective of critical race theory to use that line of thinking, those very cynical and pessimistic beliefs about race and racism, to put race into everything, make race relevant to everything, and to apparently fight racism by making everything racial, by believing that racism is permanent and ordinary, in society and therefore must be found in every possible thing that happens. Every human interaction, every structure, every institution, every word has to be scoured for its hidden racism, which it assumes must be there, needs to be found and needs to be called out and changed.
0: Now, Helen, you detail two subsets of support group identity theory, disability studies and fat studies. As has been the common theme with this conversation, disability studies starts with a good thing, making society more accommodating to the disabled. But it does take that delusional turn. Did I read correctly that applied postmodernism takes issue with treating and curing disabilities?
1: Yep. I uh, can't remember which theorist it was. Was it Fiona Campbell? We called this a kind of Stockholm Syndrome, when people feel that they should treat their disabilities. The idea is that we only believe that being able-bodied is the default and preferable position because of prejudice against disabled people. This is apparently tied into capitalism and neoliberalism, where society wants everybody to be fully functional so they can earn money for the capitalist system. So, again, we see this is all very, very cynical.
0: (laughs) Helen, fat studies is unique because it's a defense of continually making poor lifestyle choices that will have an enormous impact on the individual's quality of life. What's the applied postmodern thinking here?
1: This comes from the Foucauldian idea, again, as you were just saying quite rightly, it starts off quite well. Disability studies started off quite well, because it said, what if we don't only hold the individual responsible for trying to access everything, but make society more accessible to disabled people? With fat studies, we've got a different background that had its roots in fat feminism and quite consistently in fact, liberal and lesbian feminism. So the idea here is that women are under pressure to be small and to be beautiful because men want them to take up less space and also see them as sex objects. So we've moved a long way away from the radical feminist idea now and into the sort of intersectional postmodern approach where we're having a denial again of scientific fact of biological reality of the connection between obesity and various kinds of disease and disability. There could be a very, very good form of fat activism because there's a significant problem with a growing number of people being obese, particularly in the US, particularly in the UK. It clearly isn't enough to just say, well, just eat less and move more. We need some kind of advocacy to address the problem as a problem while also opposing being nasty to people who have a weight problem.
0: (laughs) And Helen... Why does postmodernism tend to ignore economic class? That's an interesting omission there.
1: Mm, It'll pay lip service occasionally to, as I just mentioned, to capitalism, to neoliberalism. But the focus is much more on identity because this is seen as being connected to knowledge much more. You can change your class. You cannot change your identity. So the Marxist idea was always of course very much focused on class and material status. The Marxists remain very critical of the postmodern approach because they see it as dividing the working class. The postmodernists don't really want to look at class that much because it would include a lot of straight white men and they want to very much focus on systems of power and privilege that work in discourses and with groups who are considered lesser. So the class issue doesn't really work so well. You will occasionally hear complaints about capitalism, but you will not get a sustained class analysis or a focus on the well-being and the interests of the working class.
0: (laughs) James, considering that this postmodernism has pretty major shifts every 20 years or so, uh, I believe the next shift would be in a little bit less than 10 years. What is the next step in this movement, assuming that it's allowed to continue on its current trajectory?
2: It's hard to say what the next step in the evolution of this ideology is. It's very difficult to guess at that, to be honest with you. Certainly... What I think we can say is that it has now erupted out into the public. It is no longer able to fester as these high-minded academic concepts where it can grow without scrutiny. So scrutiny has been brought upon it. When you start setting cities on fire and justifying it with your ideology by saying things like, well, we can burn down a building or we can loot a building because we have Cheryl E. Harris having written that whiteness is a form of property and whiteness dominates us. And that's a justification to reverse that power dynamic through looting and rioting and arson. You no longer have the luxury of getting to just fool around with ideas behind closed doors or in the ivory tower. So there's every reason to believe that in the next 10 years, that this particular specific ideology is going to start to collapse. It's also going to continue to turn inward and to chew on itself and tear at itself. So you'll see more and more fighting for whatever scraps of status there will be to be had between various identity groups. So you'll have a fight between, for example, Black and Indigenous people as to who is the most racially oppressed you're already having fights break out in that way. We'll have fights break out between various sexual minorities. The lesbians and the gays have been more or less ejected from the LGBT thing, and various sexual and gender minorities within sort of the non-binary, gender non-conforming and trans universe will start to fight with one another more and more. You'll see fights break out between people who want to do racial analysis without dipping into queer theory and people who want to do queer theory without dipping into race, and then people who want to do the two together in an intersectional way, and they're going to increase in their own infighting, because it's not a stable ideology, and it doesn't attach to reality, and it's all ideas, and it's now been taken up by the masses. So what I will expect to see is that this ideology will start to problematize itself even further in the book, Helen, I think refers to it, that it's likely to disappear in a puff of smoke of its own contradictions. But the underlying concept of theory is unlikely to go away. The underlying postmodern way of thinking, the underlying way to play with these kind of various abstract concepts in order to justify power grabs is not likely to go away. So I think in the next 10 years, we're likely to see this particular ideology start to collapse. And then the core of it, which is still this Marxian conflict theory applied to whether it's identity, I think identity is likely to stick around as the core thing for some time, is likely to come back into the picture in a new way. So it's very difficult to guess how it's going to evolve, because I actually think the specific thing we're looking at is in the first stages of its collapse. So what's coming in 10 years is almost impossible to guess. It will be some wholly new manifestation. And if this violence continues, it'll probably be pushed into weird corners of academic thought with a dying remnant of activists around it that are going to have to cook up a whole new way of thinking about power struggles and problems. Helen, is there anything like to add to that?
1: I agree with Jim. I think where we saw this kind of evolution over the last 50 years, which has jumped in the late 80s, and it jumped again in 2010, but it's been escalating rapidly ever since. Since 2015, we've seen a real upswing. And just in the last year, since we actually finished the book, which we did a year ago today, we didn't imagine that things would have become this overt and this extreme so quickly. So I think we are at a peak point now where something is going to happen that will cause social justice to fall. It cannot carry on as it is. It's too extreme. It's too contradictory. It doesn't have enough support from even from people on the left. So I think that the options now, and this is what worries me is how it is going to get pushed back and whether we could actually see a reversal of women's rights, racial minority rights, sexual minority rights. If the surge to the right continues as a way to oppose the excesses of social justice, we are looking at increasing populism, nationalism, anti-intellectualism, anti-equality. We're looking at the potential for taking a few steps backwards. So, What I consider my job to be at the moment is trying to push social justice back from a liberal perspective. I think in reality, the vast majority of people are liberal in that broadest sense that doesn't belong to the left or the right, in that sense in which they want everybody to have equal opportunities. They want to feel that they live in a society that is fair, where individual freedom Is a thing where people can be individuals and where we can understand ourselves as part of the same species of humanity. So I think the urgency right now is to try to galvanize this instinct so that we can push back at the social justice left, but we can also be prepared to push back at identity politics, which can come from the far right. We've seen that before. There's a long history of it. It's now. I suspect, reignited by the antagonism of identity politics on the other side. And I think the best we can all be doing at the moment is trying to get people to be liberal, to be reasonable, to avoid extreme biases of any kind.
0: Helen Pluckrose is a liberal political cultural writer, speaker, and editor of Aereo magazine. James Lindsay is a mathematician with a background in physics and founder of New Discourses. Together, they co-authored the new book, Cynical Theories. Thank you both for the time today, and thank you for this book.
2: Yeah, thank you for talking to us. It was fun. Thanks. It was a great conversation.
0: And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can check out all of our episodes through booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you get your podcasts. If you feel so inclined, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review through Apple Podcasts. Helps us grow the show. I'm Trey Elling. Until next time, this is Books on Pod.